Good to be in God's house, amen? Amen. Amen. If you were expecting Pastor Matthew, well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. (laughs) Maybe it's not a disappointment, I don't know. (laughs) Um, I I hope you love this time of year. Uh, Yeah, amen. It's, I suppose, I really like every season, but it seems like fall leading into Thanksgiving and then that Thanksgiving time leading into Christmas. It's just, it's just a fun time. It's just fun, fun, fun. So about probably 10 years ago, maybe nine years ago, I started a little project at my house that ended up not being such a little project. Um, anybody else ever do that? They keep starting. It's like, oh. But this is a project that I had been planning for a long time. In fact, my wife used to cook for like 40 football players every Monday night. And I would bring the offensive line. It was, it, was, it was a time when even quarterbacks acted like they were an offensive lineman so that they could come to the Monday night dinner, right? They're like, well, occasionally when I pitch the ball, I run out and I like, you know, may catch a shoulder on some other guy. So I'm kind of a blocker too, right, coach? And uh, they would come. And my wife was cooking out of a kitchen that was about 10 feet by 10 feet and an old white range that, I don't know, I didn't even know how things came off of that thing or out of that oven, right? But all I can tell you is the shepherd's pie was like it, they flew it in from Ireland. I mean, it was just unbelievable, right? And, and she would make these bagels with butter and Parmesan cheese and garlic seasoning. And so, I don't even know, but it was, the uh, angels were singing, I think. It was just unbelievable. And the guys, I mean, to this day, that group of boys still talk about the shepherd's pie and those bagels. And it wasn't just shepherd's pie. I mean, she made all kinds of variety. But it seemed like the shepherd's pie was the thing. And I remember my mom, when she was with us still, she would say, you know, someday you're going to have to actually get a, a, a kitchen that your wife deserves, right? And so I started dreaming years and years and years ago. You appreciate this because I know you do construction too, right? So it's just good. But anyway, uh, so my mom went to be with Jesus she never got to see, except for on a piece of paper, I had drawn a kitchen out. So I was planning, and I was, with the end in mind, I had this thing detailed out. And uh, so much so that I finally, I took it to the county, and I got a permit, and they said, hey, your drawing's actually really, really good. And I thought, say that again. <laughs> and uh, anyway, so, you know, just began by cutting the back of the house off and pushing the house out four feet. And uh, it my boys and I did it, and uh, it, it just turned out, it turned out really nice, I think. And it was, everything fit within a quarter of an inch. So 19 feet of cabinet, I mean, it's just amazing. Anyway, so all that to say, I really started with the end in mind. I had a picture in my mind of what this was going to look like and what the kitchen ultimately was going to be. And I tried to draw it on a piece of paper, and I think Kim, she was like, I don't know, because we were doing dishes for like six months out of like this... Uh, basin, and uh, you know, and our ha- our house was trying. Windows, there was no heat in the house, you know, and it was just like, is this thing ever going to get done? And she was probably like, oh, he starts projects and never finishes. Oh no, what have we done? You know, <laughs> the whole house is cut off the back, you know. But anyway, um, thanks be to God for good friends who came along and helped as well, <laughs> cattle prods and helped me get it done. But at the end of the day, it's finished, and it really is amazing. We had family over last night, and we were all standing in the kitchen and. We, 
you know, we had some competitions, Christmas kind of competitions, where we had to build, you know, build our own houses out of gingerbread, and we only had 20 minutes, and, you know, the little gumdrops and that kind of thing. Anyway, I want you to know our house got the Curb Appeal Award. Thank you. <laughs> but um, anyway, it's just fun because we're in that kitchen, and it's in the kitchen where life happens most. And still amazing meals are made. We celebrated John's birthday last night, and we had chicken fried steak and gravy. I mean, there were two types of gravy. <laughs> oh, it's so good. <laughs> anyway, uh, and why do I say that? Why do I tell you that story now? You know, we're in a, we're in a short series, a two-week series, Protect the King. And you heard last week from Pastor Matthew and some of the amazing things that God was doing behind the scenes. And I know I spoke last week at Gladstone, and we looked kind of behind the scenes, and God has these counter moves already because he actually, he knew the end of the game before he began the game, right? And master chess players actually have, you know, there's a finite number of moves in a chess game. A chess game. So when you move a pawn or you move a knight or you move a bishop, there's only a finite set of moves that can be done from the opponent. And masters have already played all those moves and then the next move and then the next move and the next move. It's like a matrix of moves. But they've done it, they've played it, so they actually know every counter move to make when a move is made. And so it's all predictable to them. And they're like, you know, 10, 12, sometimes 15 moves downstream. If they're playing me, it's only three moves and then I'm in checkmate and it's over. But all that to say, we looked at how God also is like that, if we can give some kind of a metaphor where God has known the end from the beginning, right? And even as I prayed, he was the lamb of God slain from the foundations of the earth. So God knew and he still knows and he knows. And the beauty of that is he knows even for you what's next. And I love that. Every good and perfect gift flows from the Father of lights. He orchestrates our footsteps. He directs the footsteps of the righteous. And he, he, he is causing all things to the work to the good of those who are the called in Christ Jesus. Isn't that great? God's working on our behalf. Jesus said it this way. He says, my Father has been working from the beginning. He's working. And he's been working from the beginning. And Jesus said, I too am working. So God is working, and he's working on our behalf. Come on, if you love that, just say hallelujah. Just throw up a hallelujah. I love that. God's working on our behalf. And so I say this because today in Protect the King, we're actually going to just look at the scripture that unfolds that revelation, God's revelation of his redemption and how he was going to do that and through whom he was going to do that. So there won't be a lot of notes up on the screen for you today. There's going to be a lot of scripture that come up on the screen. And so maybe you'd write these scriptures down. I think it's just a fascinating reality that God is unveiling. He's revealing. It's not a matter of concealing but rather a progressive revealing that God has. Jesus was of Jewish descent. And of course, the first Jew was Abraham. And uh, you, if we looked at Matthew's genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, Matthew being a, a, a Levi, if you will, he is, he is presenting Jesus in his gospel as the lion of the tribe of Judah. 
And so he begins his genealogy with Abraham, which rightly so. And uh, Genesis chapter 22, verse 18, reminds us, and we are told that it is through Abraham's offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed. So through Abraham's seed, all nations will be blessed, if you will, through that Abrahamic seed. Numbers 24, verse 17, reveals uh, he's from the line of Jacob. So we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And uh, this is, uh, Jacob is Abraham's grandson, and he says this in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Isaiah goes on, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. We know Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We even know Judah, and I'll get to that in a minute, but fast forward to Jesse, who is the father of King David. Jeremiah reads this, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. Now this is his name by which he will be called. This is, I skipped a, a little bit of that second verse there. The name that he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Jeremiah chapter 23. And uh, he is a king in the lineage, if you will, of King David. And reaffirming that Jesus is of the line and the lineage of King David, Samuel speaks uh, to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13. He says this, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Last Sunday, as I was at Gladstone, and you probably heard this scripture here as well, but Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says these words, But you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. There's a hint, there's a hint that the Redeemer is God himself. God himself, whose going forths are from everlasting. I think it's interesting, and I'll pause for my notes for a moment, that prophetically, Abraham spoke to Isaac when God had called Abraham to sacrifice his only son. And it's an interesting portion of scripture because when you go from like Genesis chapter 12 all the way to Genesis chapter 22, there's this progression of Abraham's obedience. And uh, we don't have enough time this morning to look at all of those interesting stories, but there's like seven or eight different times where it's like he had an interesting level of obedience, but it wasn't immediate obedience. It wasn't like God spoke and he moved. There was just kind of a progression of, or a negotiating with God about it. Hey, oh, if you would just bless Ishmael. 
And it's just, and I feel that way sometimes. I feel like Abraham sometimes where I want to negotiate with God. Anybody here ever want to negotiate with God? The study of Abraham, those 10 chapters from chapter 12 to chapter 22, it really is amazing. But it's in chapter 22 where God speaks to Abraham and says that he is requiring the sacrifice of his son. He consulted no flesh and blood. He packed the mules and left. It's like he didn't even go to Sarah and talk to her. He's like, hey, by the way, God's requiring that I offer our son of promise. You know the one that the blessing, all nations are going to be blessed through him? Now he's requiring me to take his life. But Abraham's faith was so much so that he believed that this burnt offering that he was being required to give, he would slay his son and put him on an altar and burn his body. And it would be a heap of ashes. That God would raise his son up out of the heap of ashes into a house of bread. That's why I think it's so amazing that Ephratah, which Bethlehem is first called in Scripture, Ephratah, heap of ash, becomes Bethlehem, house of bread. It's a picture, it's a type, it's a foretelling of the story. But Abraham said to his son, when his son said, Dad, we have the wood and we have the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham said these words, God will provide himself a sacrifice. It was prophetic. God will provide himself. God would come incarnate. And so we see in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 that same picture. His comings are from everlasting. A hint that the Redeemer would be God himself who takes on the form of man, who becomes flesh and blood. And so... Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, this familiar Christmas theme verse. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. The incarnation, it's a mystery. And his name shall be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel, right? We know what Emmanuel means. God with us. God with us. Again, this hint that it is God himself who has supplied himself as sacrifice. These next few scriptures out of Psalm 72, they remind us even more of the Christmas story. Um, I don't know how you set up. If you have a manger set in your house, is it, is it interesting that the manger set comes with, you know, the, the little manger itself or the crinch as they call it in won't say. Uh, and, and you have Mary and Joseph, and you have the little cradle, and you have baby Jesus in there. And, uh, and then you have the cow, and you have the donkey, and you get the sheep, and the shepherd's holding one of the sheep over his neck, and he's, and he's all there, right? And then you have those three wise guys. I mean, where we got three is kind of interesting, too, but nonetheless. But I don't know how you do it at your house, but I try and set it up kind of more like it is in the Word of God. Mary and Joseph are in the manger, and the shepherds come there. But the magi come later, and so we, we have them in another room, and they're just making their way. But the camel's always laying down. The camel's like, I'm done walking. <laughs> you know? But we have them in another room because they're making their way, and by the time they get there, it's in the house. right? They're, they've moved from the manger to the house. So anyway, all those things being said, um, God with us. So... These next few verses out of Psalm 72. 
those, uh, verses 9 and 10, those who dwell in the wilderness will bow before him and his enemies will lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and the isles will bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba will offer gifts. This is a picture of those coming to him, the kingmakers, the magi. And, you know, I don't know uh, what your knowledge of even the magi is, but Daniel, which I'll share a couple scriptures out of Daniel at the end of the message. Daniel in the Persian Empire, where the magi come from, was elevated by God in his day. So some, sometime between like 585 and 515, he was elevated in, the, in a second kingdom. He was also elevated in the Babylonian kingdom. But in the second kingdom, he was elevated positionally to what is known as the Rab Mag. The Rab Mag. Everyone say Rab Mag. Rab Mag. Yeah, he was a Rab Mag. That's a cool title, right? Uh, on his business card, he's all like, I'm the Rab Mag. <laughs> uh, which is the head of the Magi. He was the head of the wise men. He was the head of that group. Although we don't have it textually in the scripture, and although we don't even have a tremendous amount of information outside of that at that era, it is probable that it was Daniel that gave revelation knowledge to the Magi to be watching and to have a sign for the times on when these things would happen so that this entourage, and believe me, it was more than three guys showing up with one camel. It was such a large entourage that all of Jerusalem was in a stir actually thinking that they may be coming to war because a cavalry would have traveled with them. And so the whole city was astir. And they came and they presented those gifts to the Lord. After Jesus was born, you know, King Herod had those wise men show up and they said, hey, we've come to anoint the king of the Jews. Well, this was probably a little bit of alarming language for him as well. And he said to them, hey, well, when you're done, come back and tell me where he's at so I also can go. But he had an ulterior motive, right? And so God instructs Joseph to take his family down to Egypt. But the scripture tells us that Herod, when he realized that the entourage had gone a different way, that he went into Ramah. And he had all the male children, two years and younger, slaughtered. And uh, the scripture tells us out of Jeremiah chapter 31, a voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. It's inconceivable the depths in which man can take things to save his own skin, so to speak. In response to this attempt on the life of Jesus, Joseph again is warned, warned in a dream to go down to Egypt until Herod had died. Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 says these words regarding that, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What I love is God's, again, progressive revelation using the prophets 
to foretell using the prophets to let us know. And it also tells us that God in his infinite wisdom knows the end from the beginning. And he's actually telling us some of the moves he's going to make. I'm going to take, you know, move from K8 to, you know, K7 or whatever. I don't even know what, how they name the chessboard. But all that to say, he's already revealing some of his next moves and some of his counter moves. And I think it's phenomenal. So what I'd like to do is take a look at the promises through the genealogy, if you will, or the promises through his lineage. First um, Peter chapter 1 and verses 19 and 20 says this, but with the precious blood of Christ, so no longer are we saved uh, by the blood of bulls and rams, but uh, uh, the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foretold or foreordained before the foundation of the world and was manifest in these last times to you. Again, this foreknowledge of God, he foreordained before the foundation of the world. And so we'll go from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, Judah to Jesse, and ultimately to David. And there's a few, there's a few pieces missing in there in terms of the genealogy. Here, here's what I'd like to say to you, too. I would encourage you in this next week, uh, before December 25th, um, by the way, Christmas falls on December 25th this year. It's also Sunday. It's always on December 25th. Um, if you would take time to read the story of Ruth, it's absolutely First of all, it's a great ro romance novel. Um, it's, uh, it's a picture, but it also reveals God's handiwork behind the scenes. A careful understanding in that story of who Boaz actually is to Naomi in terms of a relative, a kin, but that he was not the nearest of kin. So in order for him to be the kinsman redeemer, he has to go to the nearest of kin first and give opportunity for the nearest of kin to do the redemption. Even before any of that, recognizing who Boaz's parents are. Boaz's mom, Rahab the prostitute from Jericho. Now think about this for just one minute. The first battle the Israelites are going to have when they go into crossing the Jordan, they go into the promised land. And incidentally, crossing the Jordan River is like stepping into the spirit-filled life. Crossing the Red Sea is that I'm born again. Crossing the Jordan is I'm stepping into a spirit-filled life. Okay, And let me tell you, stepping into a spirit-filled life there are battles to be won. And they're facing their first battle, and that's Jericho. And they're going to utterly destroy Jericho, man, woman, and child. So everyone on the other side of the walls of Jericho, I mean, it's, I'm just going to say it this way, they're dead. They're dying. Spies are sent in, right? Uh, and, and it's a couple of guys. And they're actually going to be dead. 
if they're not protected and saved. They, send, or they, they end up at Rahab's house, and she hides them and protects them and believes. And as a result of that, anyone who is in her house on the wall will be saved. It's another picture of the Passover, if you will. And there is a little red ribbon that kind of is an indicator as well. But before the slaughter of the people of Jericho happens, Rahab and her household is saved. And they become part of the Jews. And she marries in the tribe of Judah. And they have a child. And his name is Boaz. So in Jesus' genealogy is Rahab the prostitute. But even more mind-blowing than that is she was already dead had she not done that. And God's counter move to make it all work is her eyes were opened and she believed. And she protected. And God protected this life. I mean, it's just absolutely fascinating. Then you come to Boaz, this amazing hero, and it's against the law. It's against Mosaic law for a male Jew to marry a Moabite. And this whole story of redemption, Boaz taking Ruth on as a wife, I mean, there's a Leverite marriage law that you'd have to understand. You'd have to actually understand the laws uh, of uh, redemption as well. But suffice it to say, Boaz, he wants to redeem Naomi's land, Elimelech's land, to the family. But he has an obligation to take Ruth on as a wife. It's an obligation that he can do, but is he willing to do it? And so he goes to the nearer of kin, and the nearest of kin was willing to do three of the four requirements of a goel or a kinsman redeemer. But the fourth, the willingness to take on a Gentile bride, let alone a Gentile bride, a Moabite Gentile bride, he's like, not doing it, not doing it. So Boaz steps in and says, I'll do it. And here's the beauty of that picture, and it's a type. And this is why I just encourage you to read it during this time of year. What the law could not do. The law could not do was redeem. And so the nearer of kin is the law. And what the law could not do to save, the kinsman redeemer says, I'll take the Gentile bride. And that, my friends, is you and me. We are the Gentile bride. And so redemption is not just for the Jews. All nations of the world as a result. And God foretells the whole thing in four little chapters by type. It's so beautiful. Oh, I set a little alarm to let me know what time it was. <laughs> that, was that was for your benefit. <laughs> it means absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so the progression from Abraham to David I'll go through this relatively quick Genesis chapter 22 and verse 18 and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because thou has obeyed my voice because you have obeyed my voice so to Abraham 
Then to Isaac, Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 through 5. There was a famine in the land besides the first famine that was in the days of Abraham, and Isaac went to Abimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerir. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land of which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. And I will, make you, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. And I will give to your descendants all these lands. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So from Abraham, the promise descended to Isaac as well, spoken to Isaac. Then to Jacob, Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 and 14. He says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of earth shall be blessed. The transference of the promise handed down generation to generation to Judah through Jacob. It's promised in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10, and I won't read that one yet. I'll save that for just a few moments. But it is handed down then ultimately to Jesse. For Isaiah the prophet says in the first two verses of chapter 11, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And finally, handed down to Jesse's son, David. And again, uh, a fascinating portion of scripture. <clears throat> it is... Um, I guess it's just a powerful truth that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-knowing. Right? Just by way of reminder for you and I today, uh, he, know, he knows right where you are. He knows what's going on. He knows what's kicking in your heart. He knows what's going on in your soul. He knows what's going on in your mind. He knows what's going on in your world. He knows your circumstances. And he's working. He's working. I think it's interesting because sometimes we misunderstand God. Um, certainly when we don't see with the natural eye what he's doing. But by way of reminder, when he was in the garden after Adam and Eve, well, after Adam had sinned, Eve being deceived, she took the fruit and ate, gave it to her husband who was there. He, in full knowledge, took the fruit and ate. They made coverings for themselves, right? You remember the story, and uh, they, they took some leaves and tried to sew them together and <laughs> make, some, make some pantalones uh, <laughs> to cover themselves. And then they hid. They hid. Right? It's kind of the nature of man. When man makes mistakes, he makes coverings for himself, and then he hides. And uh, God's walking through the garden, and we have the text that says... God's speaking. He says, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? We have to understand that God's all-knowing. 
So he's not really asking where, and that's not my alarm, by the way. <laughs> but thank you for doing that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. So God's not like, where are you? I don't know where you are. He's rather saying it this way. Adam, do you see where you are? Do you see where you are? Look where you are. Why are you wearing clothes as if those were clothes? You should leave those behind. <laughs> Both puns intended, <laughs> leave and behind. Anyway, <laughs> and God, thank you for that. <laughs> and so God demonstrates the requirement of the shedding of blood. He goes and he kills two animals and makes clothing out of the skins. So the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. It's a picture and a type that he's foretelling again. And it's just absolutely fascinating. So Jeremiah, again, tells us regarding David. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise a, uh, to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. So we come to his birth, which is the Christmas story, right? And uh, my alarm will go off again in four minutes, so uh, you can feel good. Um, again, it will mean very little. Um, his birth. Isaiah chapter 7, again, verses 13 through 15 says this. Then he said, hear, hear now, O house of David, is, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will you weary, my God, also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You should also note that depending on what translation you have, the word virgin there is translated as young maiden. Uh, and that's a terrible translation. You should know that. Nowhere in scripture is the Hebrew word Alma not considered virgin. <clears throat> um, and it really plays out uh, in Genesis, uh, a couple of places, but uh, Genesis chapter 24, verse 43, when Abraham sent, this is a fascinating picture too, when Abraham sent his servant to find a bride for his son, right? Uh, think about that for a moment. When Abraham sent an unnamed servant to find a bride for his son, is that not just a picture of God the Father sending his son, or sending the Spirit to find a bride, you and I, for his son. How interesting, when he sees her come to the well, he gives her gifts, right? He gives her earrings and necklace and rings, and she puts the earrings on the ears, and she puts the necklace around her neck, and she puts the rings on her fingers. She is a picture of the bride of Christ, and when the Spirit gives gifts, and they're put in their proper place, in their proper order, she takes the unnamed servant home with her to her brother's house, Laban. Laban sees the gifts adorned on the bride. I didn't even hit snooze. I just shut it down. <laughs> sees the gifts adorned on the bride and invites the guest or the unnamed servant into his own tent. When the world sees you and I living the spirit-filled life, and the gifts of the Spirit are operating in our lives properly, the world will see that work and desire to have the unnamed servant in their own tent. It's a picture and a type of salvation. I mean, it's so, so powerful. And we get all this 
told to us in advance through type, through story, through scripture, through prophecy. So don't be, if you're reading a version that says young maiden, just understand that every Jewish young maiden was expected to be a virgin as well. It is a bad translation, but that's, you're, 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 I'm getting that from guys who I respect commentary-wise. Um, his birthplace, right? It's a fascinating thing for me. It's a fascinating thing for me that when the entourage came, the Magi came, and they inquired, where is he who was born king of the Jews? And so Herod's like, mm, bring those guys in who know stuff. And so he gets the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin type, type, type folk. They're like, hey, where is he supposed to be born? And they're like, oh, Bethlehem. Like six miles away. You'd think that they would have sent a delegation to maybe go with these guys to see who this is? Nah. No. They don't. Micah chapter 5, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrata, or Ephrata, Bethlehem, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, okay, so we know the lineage of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me one, the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Uh, this was actually written about 700 years before Jesus was even born. Uh, pretty fascinating. Um, <clears throat> It's also interesting that since then, since his birth, for the last 21 centuries, Bethlehem is accredited to his birthplace. That's absolutely, thank you. That's my new alarm system. She dances in the back. <laughs> um, let, me, let, me, let me just say this too. I, this, this next little piece is the profound piece. I'm going to read Genesis 49, verse 10. It says this, and this is Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, right? He wrestled with God, and God touched his hip, and he's, like out, of, he's out of joint, and, uh, and God changed his name. From supplanter or heel catcher, Doing it on your own, right? The idea of, hey, I'm going out first. <laughs> Come here, man. Grabbing heels. This idea of operating in the flesh is changed from Jacob to Israel, governed by God. Again, it's a picture of having an encounter with God Almighty. Governance. And be reminded of this. You and I, we are not fit to govern ourselves. Everybody copy that? When you think you can do it, you can't. You're not fit. We were, we were destined to be governed by God. Okay? <clears throat> so here's that Genesis 49, verse 10. Jacob speaking, or Israel speaking to Judah, one of his sons. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Shiloh is another term for Messiah that is rendered for us even in the Talmudic uh, authorities. The term scepter uh, is 
this idea of lawgiver and adjudicator of cases, up to and including all the way um, to capital punishment, death. So the Jews could adjudicate capital punishment. The scepter will not depart from Judah, so there will be a ruler who will be able to adjudicate until Messiah arrives. That's not going to, we're not going to miss. So even though in 722 BC, the northern tribes were completely vanquished and became part of the uh, mix of people, uh, I mean, tragedy, then a little while later, Judah is taken in 605 BC to 585 BC by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire, but they didn't cease to lose that adjudication. They didn't lose their national identity. So where they were doing, during that kind of 585 all the way up to the birth of Jesus, they were still adjudicating. They were still in a position where they actually could do their thing. But something radical happened between 6 and 7 AD. That's my other alarm system. <laughs> You guys are so helpful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You're like, we're done, Pastor. <laughs> we are almost done. Um, uh, King Herod, his son was the successor, Archelaus. Um, he was dethroned, if you know your Roman history, and uh, he was banished to Vienna, a part of Gaul. And uh, Archelaus was the second son of Herod the Great. The older son, Antipater, uh, was mur murdered by Herod the Great, <clears throat> along with many other family members. Um, so after the death of Herod in 4 BC, Archelaus was there for a little while. Uh, he was broadly rejected. So it was about six, between 6 and 7 AD that he was uh, banished and uh, rejected. Uh, and he was replaced by a Roman procurator named uh, Caponius. At that moment, the legal power of the Sanhedrin was immediately restricted and the adju uh, adjudication of capital cases was lost. And we have this record because Josephus wrote it down for us in the Wars of the Jews, and it's also uh, in the Jewish Talmud. So think about this for a moment. From the Jews' perspective, from the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of the Sanhedrin, the doctors of the law, they know that a lawgiver will not depart from Jacob's lap, if you will, the scepter will remain there until Shiloh. But in 6 AD, the scepter was removed. So you have two conclusions that could, could be true. Well, you only have one conclusion that could be true, but they had two conclusions. One, Messiah has been born. Two, God's word has failed. Guess what they picked? God's word has failed. Not even remembering that just a few years ago, an entourage came to Bethlehem to anoint the one who was born Messiah. But their minds don't remember any of that. 
and they conclude God's word has failed. And to this day, to this day, practicing Jews believe that the Torah failed. God's word failed. Imagine worshiping a God that isn't perfect. Thanks be to God, you and I know that it was just a few years before that that there was a man named Joseph and a virgin named Mary that were betrothed. And Mary was with child. And because of the census, census during the days of Quirinius, they made their way to Bethlehem. And it was there in Bethlehem that Jesus was born. If we took time to know the exact timing of all of these things, it's Daniel who tells us. And this is why I believe that the Magi knew when to come to Jerusalem. A careful reading of Daniel chapter 9, verses 23 through 27, it's probably the most profound prophecy contained in the word of God. But it tells us that Messiah is going to arrive after the rebuilding of Jerusalem was completed, but it was before Jerusalem's destruction. And uh, certainly, um, it is, there's a timeline in there as well. And the timeline is perfect from the going forth of the commandment to rebuild the wall and the city in troublesome times until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. That's 69 sevens for 483 years or 173,880 days. They should have known the exact day that he would present himself and the presentation of serving in a temple would be at 30 years of age. And they, should have, they would have been able to backtrack that and know approximately, and that's, I believe, how those magi who were connected to Daniel, that's how they knew when to go. I think that's fascinating. So all that to say, you and I, we have the beauty of looking back and seeing God's perfection, how he protected, how he progressively revealed, beginning with the end in mind. It was the end game, if you're a Marvel kind of person, the end game. And God had the end game because he knew the end from the beginning. Just like I knew what the kitchen was going to look like, God knew. And so he had this progressive revelation all the way through, and it's recorded for us in his word. And it's perfect. And this God, who is perfect, loves you perfectly. And it is without measure. It is unconditional and without measure. And he is working on our behalf. Can I get an amen to that? This Christmas season, will you seek to share the love story of God with those who do not know him? After all, we are Christ's ambassadors, and he is making his appeal through you and I to a world that desperately needs him. Jesus is the reason for this season. Can I get an amen? Amen. amen.